Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Elizabeth Norman. In this episode, Americans moved out of the cities and into Connecticut suburbs in droves after World War II, looking for single-family homes with modern floor plans, garages, patios, and the latest appliances. But who was welcome in these neighborhoods? Putting the spotlight on West Hartford is just one example. Connecticut explores Mary Donahue finds out how restrictive covenants, racial and religious discrimination, and federal housing policies all helped determine where African-American and Jewish buyers could purchase homes in suburban Connecticut and the nation. Hi, I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Today we're going to dive into the story of how the forces of government policies and the real estate market, beginning in the 1920s, led to unfair housing practices affecting Jewish and African-American homebuyers in Hartford, the state's capital, and West Hartford, an adjacent suburb. At the national level, New York Times bestselling author and correspondent for The Atlantic, Tanahasi Coates outlines these forces that affected African American homebuyers in his award winning essay, The Case for Reparations. Research economist and leading authority on housing policy, Richard Rothstein's new book, published in 2017, The Color of Law A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, provides an unflinching examination of how government policies segregated the nation's neighborhoods. But where's the evidence of how this affected us in Connecticut? After hearing stories about steering and housing discrimination after World War II from its members, Estelle Kafer, the executive director of the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford, convened experts on a panel to kick off a community discussion. Over 110 people attended, and many told their own stories about the challenges of buying a home in West Hartford. Were certain neighborhoods really off-limits to Jews? Using West Hartford as an example, we're going to hear from Dr. Jack Doherty and Dr. Tracy Wilson about new cutting-edge research on this topic. West Hartford is now a diverse and vibrant inner suburb located just to the west of Hartford. Before World War II, the Jewish community was centered in the north end of Hartford, but the post-war era offered new opportunities for Jews to move from older neighborhoods to suburban ones in West Hartford and Bloomfield. Dr. Betty Hoffman, in her book, Jewish West Hartford, documents this move. She also confronts the real estate practice of steering. Dr. Hoffman relates that as late as the 1970s, this was still taking place. She quotes Linda Hirsch, a Hartford Current reporter, who wrote, A realtor helping my family find a home in West Hartford spread a map of the town on the floor. He proceeded to outline the Duffy School neighborhood with a dayglow green felt-tip pen and adorned it with a crucifix. His hand crossed Farmington Avenue and found a section called the Reservation because the streets bear the names of Native American tribes. Within its borders, he drew a Star of David. You'll be more comfortable here, he said. After watching him mark several other areas with stars and crosses, we moved into one of the few sections where a star and a cross coexisted. Let's ask Dr. Jack Doherty, author of On the Line, How Schooling, Housing, and Civil Rights Shaped Hartford and Its Suburbs, about these real estate practices. If you'd like to see the interactive maps his project has produced, you can find his book on the web at onthelinetrincall.edu. 
So it's onthelinetrincoll.edu. Dr. Doherty received his Ph.D. in Educational Policy Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Now, we hear a lot of these real estate terms, but we may not know exactly what they mean or how they got started. Could you explain redlining, for example? Yeah, redlining is a good place to start because it's um, there's a lot of books uh, that use the term right now. Um, we just had uh, Richard Rothstein at Trinity College back in September, and I recommend uh, people look at his book as well. Um, redlining is a term that um, wasn't uh, really popularized until the 1960s or 70s, but um, we can trace it back to the 1930s and the Depression. Um, so uh, as I've got a map in the book that shows the federal government created these redlining maps in collaboration with lots of local lenders and, and mortgage officials. Um, the federal government was trying to just jumpstart the housing economy in the Depression. And they were trying to persuade local lenders that maybe it was possible that there would be some neighborhoods where the risk would be better rather than lower to, uh, to loan, lend money to help, help people buy housing. So they made color-coded maps, the federal government and private industry and the one I'm looking at here that's in our book, it's got green as the first grade properties, down blue, down to yellow, down to the fourth grade or the lowest grade was red. So the red areas were marking where the federal government was actually telling businesses, don't lend money into these areas. And in the Hartford area, um, those red areas were right along the Connecticut riverfront. Um, now, if the federal government was just measuring uh, risk based on some uh, kind of objective standards, like, you know, what's the housing cost or what's the construction type, that would have been one thing. But when we look at the redlining, the reports that go with these redlining maps and documents, there's, the federal government's actually looking at the social composition of who lived there. So um, the form in 1930s language asks, uh, what's the percentage of foreign-born families? And one of these redlining areas in Hartford has 34% Italian families. The form asks whether or not there's Negroes living there. And this particular neighborhood had about 60% uh, Negroes. Um, they asked whether or not the families were on relief or receiving federal assistance at the time. So there's been a lot of scholars looking at these redlining maps across the United States. There's about 250 of them. And they've been analyzing that while the redlining didn't necessarily determine whether or not you got a mortgage or not, it certainly influenced whether or not federal government and private investors were lending in your neighborhood. Suburbs tended to benefit, especially if they were predominantly white areas and if they were having newer construction. So this happened all over the country? And uh, uh, redlining uh, 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 through the Homeowners Loan Corporation, that's the federal entity that made these maps, um, that happened across the United States, and uh, uh, Hartford is not specific to it, but I think uh, you always have to tell that local story to help pe make people see it and make it real here. And the redlining maps are not super obvious the way they plan out. Um, some people might think that um, uh, West Hartford would be all the highest level, and Hartford might be all the lowest level, but when you actually look at the map from 1937, there's parts of West Hartford that actually got the third rating. That's the third from the bot, uh, third from the top, the yellow rating, and parts of Hartford that actually had the highest rating or the second highest rating. So it's interesting to see how different neighborhoods evolved over time and the structural forces that pushed them in different directions. Now, part of that's because West Hartford had, for example, multiple housing, you know, multiple unit housing like triple deckers or double houses. 
didn't that play into a lower rating too? Yeah, the federal government and the mortgage officials, they are looking at um, uh, uh, indicators about whether or not um, it's apartment buildings or whether or not there's commercial development. I'm looking right on the map here and I can see right where Farmington Avenue cuts through into Hartford. You can see on both sides of that, um, that's actually considered a second grade. And if you go further north into uh, the Elizabeth Park, neighbor, Elizabeth Park area and uh, to the west of there, a lot of that's all green. Um, but I think it's important, and, and people who've done studies of these maps with larger areas have shown that um, the, you can have similar housing stock, but different social composition of who lives there, and that you can see influence what type of ratings were happening. You know, I think a lot of people think, oh, that kind of housing discrimination only happened in the South, but really it happened everywhere and it was part of the fabric of these policies. I know in West Hartford you found, for example, race restrictive property, property covenants. Could you explain what those are? Yeah, this one I think really floored a lot of people when we found some of these, just because of what you said, Mary. Um, a lot of uh, uh, Northerners, we tend to, especially white Northerners, we tend to think of, oh, oh, racial discrimination, that's something that was built into the law in the South, that's not something we had here in the North, and that's not true. Um, we looked through the real estate deeds in the town clerk's office in just one suburb, West Hartford. Now, real estate deeds, that's the legal document that sort of is transacted whenever people sell property from one person to another. And what we found in the 1940s, we found at least six different real estate developments that were created uh, uh, just before World War II, where the real estate developers filed the deed that actually required that only whites could own the property. The wording actually um, for one of these, this is the um, High Ledge Homes area. This is located um, just across the street from the, um, what's the golf Rock course? Rock Ledge. Rock Ledge Golf Course. Um, here's the wording from this 1940, 19, June 1940 document. No persons of any race except the white race shall use or occupy any building on any lot except that this covenant shall not prevent occupancy by domestic servants of a different race employed by an owner or tenant. In other words, only white people could live there or own the property and live there, um, but there was the loophole that, well, if you had a domestic servant um, who was African-American, that person could reside there as well. So what's striking to us here is that um, this is baked right into the law. It's, it's a legal restriction, uh, a, a racial restriction, that at the time this was enforced by the state courts and the federal courts. Um, so there were people, um, uh, we also found uh, uh, Simon Bernstein is a Hartford attorney around this time, and he's one of the most outspoken people. He's a Hartford resident, he's active in democratic politics, and he's speaking out, uh, challenging this covenant, and also challenging, um, uh, he's referring to uh, covenants that also uh, prohibited non-Semitic persons or an anti-Jewish covenant as well. So we're interested in finding uh, people who, we have the story of people who created these covenants and also people who fought against these covenants at the time. And I know at one point the Supreme Court acts on these and they become more uh, unenforceable, but they still, still seem to be on the books. How does that happen? Well, uh, so uh, you're exactly right. In, in 1948, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that um, uh, these race-restrictive covenants are no longer enforceable, but they're still there in people's deeds. And we actually did some oral history interviews with um, residents of that uh, High Ledge Homes development uh, near Rockledge. Um, um, some people who were floored to find out, mostly white residents, uh, white homeowners, floored to find out that they lived in a home with a racial uh, uh, restrictive covenant 
or we found others who actually recall that uh, these are long-term homeowners that a lawyer might have told them in the 1970s there was something in their deed that they just wanted to be aware of um, but it wasn't enforceable but it certainly uh, that story I think encapsulates how both of those stories they encapsulate how much government was involved in creating these lines so what's the big picture with this I think the big picture overall, both of the redlining and of the restrictive covenants and other things we'll talk about is that the boundary lines that divide us are not simply a matter of individual choice. It's not just like me choosing to live near white people or near African-Americans or near Latin Americans. Um, I think the big story here is that government, our government, our federal policies and state policies shaped large portions of these lines. And uh, with restrictive covenants like this one, ended up shaping who was going to live where and the wealth effects of that. You know, right now, today in America, we have a tremendous gap between the average wealth of whites versus average wealth of African Americans. You can trace a large part of that back to who could get into what types of homes because the value of those suburban homes in predominantly white areas skyrocketed over time. So I know if people, if our listeners go to the website, they'll be able to see other places in West Hartford that had those kind of restrictive covenants. I've certainly run into those as an architectural story and researching in other cities and other states. So it was a really common activity. Now, what did the 1968 Federal Fair Housing Act make law? How did that help this? Sure. So a number of activists um, uh, pushed hard during the, 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 the civil rights years of the 1960s trying to push for more fair housing policy. So Lyndon Johnson signed in in 1968 the Fair Housing Act, and it outlawed most forms of discrimination um, that real estate agents had been steering people or that uh, federal government and, and loan programs like other ones, uh, Federal Housing Agency and so forth, or, um, their loan programs also from discrimination. So the law shifts in favor of more civil rights protections, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all enforced. That makes me think of, you mentioned earlier, the idea of steering. Now you hear that a lot. What does steering actually mean? So um, like I said, if I'm um, going to a real estate agent um, or an apartment uh, a manager, um, and I'm asking to be shown homes or housing to look at, um, they have the power of, of, unfortunately, steering us in certain directions. And a large number of, of civil rights groups in Hartford area in particular in the early 1970s were documenting how racial steering was happening. And the way they did it was fascinating. There's one group we wrote about called Education Instruction. And it uh, starts off as a three-person civil rights organization, Boyd Hines, Julia Ramos McKay, and Ben Dixon. And they're in Hartford, and they're trying to um, build a, a coalition of people who will challenge um, uh, racial steering. They, they went and got uh, white couples, African-American couples, Puerto Rican couples to go to real estate agencies and follow the same script. I'm looking for a home. Um, I have approximately, at that time, maybe uh, $30,000 to spend. Um, where, should, where, would, where will you show me homes? And they were able to document how whites were sent into certain areas, often uh, suburbs like West Hartford, and African-Americans were sent into other neighborhoods, um, neighborhoods in Hartford or maybe um, some neighborhoods in Bloomfield. 
So they documented this and they showed it in the court records and they actually got the U.S. Department of, of Justice to join with them to sue. And they won a court lawsuit in 1974, a settlement against seven of the eight largest real estate firms in the metropolitan Hartford area that they needed to stop racial steering. That's kind of staggering. I think nowadays everybody thinks you can just look at Zillow and you can see everything down to what the half bath is looks like and how often the kitchen's been redone. And the concept that you had to have a real estate agent or a rental agent actually show you the property and be willing to show you the property or steer you toward a property uh, really is a different age to say the least. But it certainly impacted Hartford. Can we go so, there for a second? Mm-hmm. I think you know. I love history conversations, as your listeners do, because it makes you think about how the past is different from where we are now. And I think uh, you're exactly right. Information about housing was much more centralized in the hands of just a few real estate firms and the ones who actually invented um, multiple listing service, like that 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 database of where the homes were for sale. The real estate agents who controlled that um, uh, certainly cornered the market. Um, information diversified with the internet over time. But some of the chapters that aren't in the book yet, but are mentioned in some of the um, summaries we have, we look at how some of these um, patterns of steering and self-steering actually continue onward with the diversified information age, with the internet. And we look at how people actually use schooling information to send people to different neighborhoods or send themselves to different neighborhoods. Uh, We're talking about these types of discriminatory practices that happened really across the country, north and south. What do you think are the things that we ought to be paying attention to now? Well, certainly I don't ever want to make it sound like I'm arguing that uh, racial discrimination is a bygone of the past. Um, Certainly even today, you have a number of fair housing organizations in Hartford and elsewhere who are still showing that uh, steering is happening. Um, in the apartment and in the housing market um, by race and by other protected factors. Um, People who receive uh, Section 8 housing assistance or something like that, you you can't disqualify them from showing them different apartments, but that's a common practice. I think what I try to shift the conversation to is a different type of line drawing that's much more, has old origins that are just as old, but is still very common today because it's not color conscious, at least on the surface. And I'm talking about exclusionary zoning ordinances. So um, uh, when people hear about zoning, um, I mean, first time I heard about zoning, it was like, I kind of zoned out. It sounds boring at the first glance. And I actually think that's, that's probably why it's still pervasive today. These are all the little rules and regulations. You've often very local about what kind of building you can build or can't build in certain areas. But what I started looking at this more closely because my students were actually telling me this need to be more attention. Uh, shout out to Fanula Darby Hudgens if you're out there listening to this one. Zoning is what really drove a lot and still continues to drive a lot of, of, of uh, divisions on an economic basis with racial implications in the metropolitan Hartford area today. And what's an example of that? I know you mentioned things like lot size. So, um, uh, We had to go back to uh, 1924 in West Hartford to make sense of how zoning came about. 
um, and to see what implications it had. So um, uh, back then, uh, uh, zoning has many progressive uh, 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 tendencies to it. Certainly, um, the idea of let's separate industrial space from residential space. Let's make sure you don't have a toxic waste factory next to a daycare center. Those are good progressive elements of zoning, separating uh, land use for the betterment of health and, and other social issues. But towns like West Hartford, the first one in Connecticut to actually adopt a state enabling uh, uh, policies to allow zoning. West Hartford actually made town policies that that were specifically designed to make multifamily affordable housing, quote, uneconomic to build in several neighborhoods. So how did we find this out? We went to the 1924 report about um, the first, sort of like the way that the West Hartford town officials um, were considering the first zoning plan. And we saw a map that, that showed um, different neighborhoods with A's and B's and C's on it, which were sort of the original zoning language, very simple at that time. And I'm looking at a map now where in the Elizabeth Park area, um, the letter A shows that it was a certain type of zoning rather than um, uh, down uh, uh, in other parts closer to Farmington Avenue might've been in zone in the C or D area. So what did this mean? Well, here's a line from the zoning report of 1924. It says, while three family houses and apartment houses are not prohibited in the A or B or C districts, their erection will for the most part be rendered uneconomic by the lot area, the lot and side yard requirements, all of which increase with the number of families to be housed. In other words, the town was actually baking into its local ordinances that if you wanted to build a house, in what they wanted to be a richer part of town, part A, you had to have more land, larger homes, and larger frontage in front of it so that the houses would be further apart. And whenever you put more land into a house, that makes the house more expensive. Other parts of town were zoned in different ways that allowed multifamily housing, duplexes, and so forth. So West Hartford didn't prohibit multifamily housing in all of West Hartford. But West Hartford clearly set the rules so that some neighborhoods would have much wealthier housing than others. Jack, thank you so much. For Jewish residents, what was it like to move from a tight-knit neighborhood of multifamily triple-deckers in yellow brick apartment buildings within walking distance of Jewish businesses and synagogues to single-family homes in large housing developments? What role did anti-Semitism play in determining where Jewish homeowners felt welcome? And what effect did Jewish builders and developers have on the choices that Jewish homebuyers had? Let's hear what West Hartford town historian Dr. Tracy Wilson has uncovered. Dr. Wilson received her PhD in history from Brown University. When we started to talk about fair housing and housing discrimination in West Hartford, you were one of the first people I thought of. And had you heard anything about discrimination in housing in West Hartford in your research or in other projects you'd worked on? My first introduction to it came I think back in the 1990s when uh, one of my students was doing a local history research paper and she found out about housing, World War II housing that was built in West Hartford. And there was a big controversy about whether the federal government could actually build the housing here because West Hartford wanted to keep 
what were called back then Negroes, uh, from living in that housing. And according to the federal government during World War II, there was not to be any discrimination against African Americans. And so there was a long drawn out fight about this. And finally the housing was built with a compromise, but in fact, there were no African Americans who ever lived in this, in any of the three housing projects that were built. I saw a newspaper headline online, and the headline read, Negroes may not move into the Oakwood War housing track. So that's the housing you're talking about. That is the housing I'm talking about. And the, the compromise that they came up with was that uh, black people could move into this housing if they already lived in West Hartford, which really went against the whole purpose of the, of the housing to begin with. And there were not any people in town who, who chose to do that. So that made me think, well, you know, maybe there's more of this. Maybe there are more restrictions in, in because in the mid 20th century, there are very few African Americans who live in West Hartford. And so it made me think there, there might be more uh, restrictions. And in my work with Professor Jack Doherty at Trinity, and through my connections in town, we found a restrictive covenant that was part of a mortgage deed in the area across from the, uh, from the golf course on, on South Main Street. And this restrictive covenant said that nobody but uh, someone of the white race may reside in this, in this house. And, and that was a, a deed from the early 1940s. That's so interesting. And I know that when we first started to plan this program with the Jewish Historical Society, one of the things that you and Estelle Kafer and I discussed and also brought Dr. Doherty into was how much discrimination Jewish homeowners may have faced after the Second War when they really started to move into the new suburban housing tracks in West Hartford. How did you go about researching this question to get ready for the panel program? Um, this was a, a really interesting question for me because there are lots of, um, there are people who will say, well, I know that Jews could not live on the mountain and they couldn't live at Sunny Reach and they couldn't live in West Hill and they couldn't live um, on Wood Pond. And there were all these neighborhoods where people sort of knew that uh, Jews could not live there. And so I'd heard those over the years and yet um, had never seen any documentation of it. And so the question is, is it all just word of mouth or is there some specific evidence? Uh, so one of the first things I thought of in some of these neighborhoods that had neighborhood associations that maybe there was some line in the neighborhood association bylaws that would exclude certain groups. Um, but that didn't seem to be the case. Th though in those neighborhoods, it seems until fair housing laws in the 1960s, these houses just passed from one family to another by word of mouth and often didn't go out on the real estate market. So then I thought, well, um, maybe I can, the, the idea in West Hartford that people, or at least the, um, you know, people think, well, 
um, Jews in West Hartford live in the north end of town. And so were there areas of the south end of town where um, people said, no, Jews may not live here. And one of the first stories that I found really changed the way I did my research and changed the way I um, thought about the movement of Jews into West Hartford because originally the Jews who lived in West Hartford lived in, uh, many of them lived in the area around Morley School. So that was being developed in the 1920s. So as Jews started to move west, as others started to move west, there seemed to be a lot of development there. And um, if you look at old city directories, you'll find many uh, Jewish surnames along those streets, Ardmore Street, Dover Road, uh, along there. Um, but I talked to a, a man who had served on our Board of Education and uh, lived around where Conard High School is today in the south end of town. And he moved on to a street, Miles Standish. And when he moved there, there were three Jewish families who lived on that street. And it really surprised me because these houses are built in the 1940s. And, you know, my image was any Jews who moved here moved to the north end of town. And so that made me wonder, why is that happening? Um, and um, it led me to um, uh, finding out about the developers who built these homes. Um, so one man I talked to said, oh, Victor Carnelli, he would not sell homes to Jews. And so then I had this name and I looked up Victor Carnelli and found out he was a really big developer in West Hartford. And in fact, his developments around where Conard High School is today and in several other areas in town actually did have restrictive covenants, as well as this idea that he, was, he himself wasn't going to sell his house to Jews. And I thought, okay, well then, right next to that road, um, there are Jewish people who live there. And I connected that with another builder whose name was Irving Stitch. And Irving Stitch was as big a developer as Carnelli was. And he was Jewish and he um, sold his houses uh, to Jewish people as well. And, and it's really interesting that many of his developments backed right up to Carnelli's developments. Um, and so it led me down this path to think of these developers having a lot of power. We, we often think of it as, oh, it's the banks um, that have the power about, or it's the real estate agents who are steering people. But in fact, in the 1940s and 50s, it seemed like the builders had, had quite a say on who bought their homes. I think that's right, because certainly Levittown is the famous example, the one, the big thousands and thousands of homes in one big development. They refused to sell to African Americans. They were builders that just put up home after home on a big economy scale, big uh, model of hundreds of homes every year. And that was literally an all-white community for decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was because of the builders, not because of necessarily the banks or the real estate agents, mm -hmm. but that that was what was going to sell, and that's what they were going to get their federal housing support for, and that's the road they went down. So you think that these the builders were Im important in this, and I know you had some examples of some of the ads and, and some of the language from the ads that would tend to make you think you may or may not be comfortable in that neighborhood. 
Yeah, one of the ones that really uh, stuck out to me was uh, for Carnelli Home, um, and it was the area in the northwest section of West Hartford, and there's a park there now, which is called Eisenhower Park, and the name of his development was Whitewood Farms. I thought that was telling. But also the wording in his ad is that it is near uh, the new St. Timothy Parish, a Catholic church, and parochial schools. Um, The school Northwest Catholic and St. Timothy Middle School were right in that area. And the new proposed park, that was part of the ad to sell these homes. So he was clearly appealing to to people who were Catholic in this um, in this development, because <clears throat> um, there is a synagogue quite near there and the country club that was established by Jews because they were kept out of all the all the other country clubs. Tumblebrook is um, very close to that area as well, and so not only did he build these homes, he advertised them for a certain ethnicity um, to. So they could really pick up on those words like, oh, it's close to this parish or it's close to this parochial school. Now, did you find any relationship between, does it matter if it was a well-to-do area in town or a middle-class area in town, or is it more driven not by the economic class but by the builders? That's really interesting because I think one of the questions I ended up with at the end of the of this little piece of research I did was, are middle class areas more integrated than areas where wealthy people live? And um, I'm not sure um, that will really take more research, but one of the, uh, there are two examples that help to highlight this. The sort of the word on the street is that uh, people who are Jewish could not live around the Hartford Golf Club and particularly on a street called Colony Road, and there's another one, I can't quite remember the name of it now, and yet the streets that intersected Colony Road, there were many Jewish people who lived on them. So there's one, there's one street called uh, Sequin Road, um, which had one Jewish home after another, or people who were Jewish who lived in these homes after another, and they were streets that abutted each other. and. That I sort of trace back to Irving Stitch, who built these homes on Sequin Road. Um, but the the streets, um, there were many wealthy areas that seemed to have kept Jews out. And then I found uh, this street uh, off of Mountain Road, which in on which I found many people of uh, a Jewish background called High Ridge, High Ridge Road. And these houses are, you know, very high-end homes. And Irving Stitch himself lived on High Ridge Road, as well as many leaders in the Jewish community. And so they found a spot where they controlled the land and built the homes and made a a a neighborhood for themselves. You know, as a historian, I often think that if you don't have more questions at the end of a project than you started with, you're not doing your job right. (laughs) And I know that uh, you have some tantalizing questions that you ended the program with, and maybe you could share some of those because there's so much more research that could go into this to really reveal some new insights into how West Hartford developed. 
Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm interested in the sort of the business side of this, whether owners of businesses who are Jewish found it difficult to make their way into the West Hartford business community. I'm interested also in, in how the presence of Orthodox synagogues affected the choices about housing in West Hartford. And I'm still interested to know if there are any written documents which uh, which restricted Jews uh, from their neighborhoods, or whether this was just uh, something that was understood. I, I wonder, too, whether when these restricted cover, covenants were written in the 1940s at the height of anti-Semitism and during World War II, when Hitler was at his peak of power, whether these restricted covenants saying that no one but people of the white race may live here, whether those who wrote it, their intent was that that Jews were not considered part of the, whether they might have thought Jews were not part of the white race. Um, so I'd be interested to, to do a little more research about that. And I guess I wonder too about how much control builders retain uh, today. Though there isn't a lot of new building going on in town, do builders still retain that same um, some of that same control, and do real estate agents still steer people to certain neighborhoods? Tracy, do you have a good story to tell us that you encountered? Yes, one of the people that I spoke with, um, an older gentleman who was Jewish, uh, said that when he came to town um, in the early, um, in the mid 20th century, he had $30,000 to put down in a house, and he found a house. Uh, on Farmington Avenue and so he said to his real estate agent I've got $30,000 I can buy this house outright and the real estate agent said to him okay I could go to the owner and tell him that but as soon as I did he would say I'm taking it off the market and it's not for sale Um, so there are many different ways that uh, people who are Jewish were kept out of certain neighborhoods and kept from buying houses in certain areas of town. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks so much, Mary. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. This is a big topic and one that needs further research. The Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford is now collecting oral histories about growing up Jewish in West Hartford. Go to their website at jhsgh.org if you want to share your story. Be sure to look for Dr. Doherty's online book, On the Line, which can be found at onthelineetrincall.edu. This is Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank our guests Estelle Kafer, Jack Doherty, and Tracy Wilson. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored, and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Subscribe to Connecticut Explored and get the upcoming Spring 2018 issue about Historic Preservation's Detective Stories. And get the five-pack collection of all five Historic Preservation back issues at a special value price. It's great reading on a snowy day or on a sunny beach. Subscribe, buy back issues and collections, including a make-your-own collection at a special price at ctexplored.org. Thank you.